Listeners, if you love conspiracy theories, you can find our entire catalog of episodes, plus new ones each week, free and only on Spotify. That's hundreds of episodes you won't hear anywhere else, all in one place. All you have to do is download the Spotify app for free and follow Conspiracy Theories to ensure you don't miss out on any of the world's craziest controversies and cover-ups. Thanks for listening to Conspiracy Theories, and we'll see you on Spotify. If you're interested in crazy stories from the wild world of organized crime, scams, gangs, cartels, mafias, drug dealers, and everything fun like that, have we got a podcast for you. The Underworld Podcast is hosted by two conflict journalists, Danny Gold and Sean Williams, who have reported on all sorts of dangerous people in dangerous places. Every week, they bring you a new episode on international organized crime from a new corner of the globe. You can find the Underworld podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It was a warm summer morning, just before dawn. Police Sergeant Jack Clemens arrived at the home of Marilyn Monroe. The Hollywood starlet was lying dead in her bed, wrapped in a white sheet, clutching a telephone in her motionless hand. The nightstand was covered in empty prescription pill bottles. It was like a scene from a movie. Another beautiful but troubled woman had finally lost the battle to her inner demons. But was the scene too picture-perfect to be true? Sergeant Clemens had seen a number of fatal overdoses in his career, and this looked more like a staged movie set than a real suicide. Her body appeared to have been moved. There was no trace of vomit or pill residue around her mouth. There was no glass of water in the room for her to have swallowed those dozens of pills with, and the housekeeper didn't recall Marilyn leaving her room all night. Conspiracy? Maybe. Coincidence? Maybe. Complicated? Absolutely. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, the podcast where we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. If you want to listen to previous episodes, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory or on our website, parcast.com. I'm Carter Roy. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. Marilyn Monroe was one of the biggest silver screen stars of her day when she was found dead from an apparent overdose in 1962 at the age of 36. The whole world was devastated by the tragedy. But the investigators weren't just devastated, they were baffled. If she overdosed on prescription pills, why was there no trace of pills in her digestive system? 
What happened in the four and a half hours between Marilyn's body being discovered and the police being called to the scene? And why did neighbors report seeing Attorney General Robert Kennedy enter the house just an hour before she died? Despite the official coroner's verdict, there's substantial evidence to suggest that Ms. Monroe's death wasn't a suicide. It was murder. This week, we'll be focusing on the official story, the version of events reported to the police the morning after her sudden death in August 1962. To understand Marilyn Monroe's tragic death, we need to understand her tragic life. The girl who would become Marilyn Monroe was born as Norma Jean Mortensen on July 1, 1926. She was legally given the last name of her mother's husband, even though the couple had been separated for years. The identity of Norma Jean's actual father is unknown. Her mother, Gladys Pearl Monroe Baker, was a young flapper and film negative cutter in Los Angeles. Unable to work and care for a baby at the same time, Gladys placed Norma Jean with her own mother's neighbors, the Bolianders, in the nearby town of Hawthorne. Gladys worked in L.A. during the week and visited her daughter on the weekends. Although the Bolianders treated her well, young Norma Jean still longed for a deeper relationship with her mother. She later recalled, quote, She had never kissed me or held me in her arms or hardly spoken to me, except to say, don't make so much noise, Norma." In 1933, right at the beginning of the Great Depression, Gladys saved up enough money to buy a small house in Hollywood and brought Norma Jean to live with her. But the fantasy of domestic life wouldn't last for long. Gladys couldn't afford to pay the mortgage, even while working double shifts at the film studio. So they had to rent out the house's top floor to boarders. The next year, when Norma Jean was eight, she was molested by one of the boarders who lived in the house. Though when she recounted the story as an adult, she refused to name who the abuser was. When she tried to tell her mother what had happened, her mother ignored her. There was no way they could afford the house if they kicked the border out, so there was nothing to be done. Around this time, possibly because of the insecurity and loneliness that defined her early years, Norma Jean developed a stutter that she would struggle with for the rest of her life. In 1934, beaten down by the stress of her financial situation and parental obligations, Gladys had a mental breakdown. She was taken to a mental hospital and diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. The family had a history of mental illness. Gladys's father had killed himself long before Norma Jean was born, and her mother, Norma Jean's grandmother, had died in a mental hospital while being treated for psychosis. Mental illness can be genetic, and later in life, Norma Jean would show signs of the same problems that affected her mother and grandmother. Gladys spent the rest of her life in and out of hospitals. With her mother incapacitated, Norma Jean became a ward of the state. She lived with her mother's friend, Grace McKee, for a year, but when Grace lost her job in 1935, she had to send Norma Jean to the Los Angeles Orphans Home. 
and for the next few years, she would bounce around between the orphanage and different foster families. This was during the height of the Great Depression, and even though families were given a small stipend for taking in foster children, none of the families could commit to keeping her for more than a few months. Already a shy, insecure child, she had trouble making friends at school because everyone knew she lived in an orphanage. She also began to develop night terrors, a sleep disorder involving intense fear, thrashing and screaming while sleeping. Children often outgrow night terrors as they get older, but Norma Jean would deal with the problem for the rest of her life. But Norma Jean didn't give up hope that someday things would get better. As an adult, she recalled that while living in the orphanage, quote, I daydreamed chiefly about beauty. I dreamed of myself becoming so beautiful that people would turn to look at me when I passed. I dreamed of myself walking proudly in beautiful clothes and being admired by everyone, end quote. Feeding that dream was Grace McKee, who took Norma Jean in again for a few months in the summer of 1937. Grace had met Gladys while they were both working as film cutters, and although Grace had lost her job due to the difficult economy, she was still close with some of her old co-workers in the industry. Gladys would dress Norma Jean up in fancy clothes and take her around to the studios where she used to work, showing her off to old friends. With Grace's encouragement, little Norma Jean told them that when she grew up, she was going to be a movie star. But her career as an actress was still a faraway dream. Norma Jean jumped around between different foster families for a few more years, until she moved back in with Grace's family in 1940, when she was 14. But that home would also be short-lived. Just two years later, Grace's husband got a job in West Virginia, and California laws prevented them from taking Norma Jean with them out of the state. At just 16 years old, she had two options. Either return to the orphanage until she turned 18, or get married so that she could legally be considered an adult. So, just weeks after her 16th birthday, Norma Jean dropped out of high school and married the next-door neighbor, a 21-year-old factory worker named Jim Doherty. They lived together for two years, until Jim, who was enlisted in the Merchant Marines, was shipped out to the Pacific in 1944. Norma Jean moved in with Jim's parents and began working at the Radioplane Munitions Factory to support herself. It was there that she would find her unlikely break into the world of modeling. In late 1944, a photographer was sent to shoot pictures of the women working in the munitions factory as part of a project to encourage women to participate in the war effort. He was blown away by one otherworldly beauty who looked out of place working on the factory floor, Norma Jean. He asked her if she would be interested in modeling for him outside of the factory project. For a teenage girl who'd longed for beauty and glamour since childhood, it was a dream come true. Within a few months, she had quit her factory job and was modeling full-time. At her agent's advice, she straightened and bleached her curly brunette hair into glamorous platinum blonde. Within the next year, she appeared on 33 magazine covers. 
But she had her sights set on something bigger than posing for photos. She wanted to be an actress. She later said becoming an actress was, quote, like being in jail and looking at a door that said, this way out. It was a way for her to earn the independence, admiration, and financial security she'd always been longing for. In 1946, the modeling agency arranged a screen test for Norma Jean at one of the biggest studios in the industry, 20th Century Fox. They signed her for a six-month contract. She began going by the stage name we all know her by today, Marilyn Monroe. A Fox executive picked the first name because she reminded him of the Broadway star Marilyn Miller, and Norma Jean chose the last name Monroe after her mother's maiden name. Unfortunately, Jim wasn't happy with his wife's new career. He told her that her modeling was ruining their home life, a bold assertion from a man who still spent months at a time at sea with the merchant marines. Marilyn was given an ultimatum. If she didn't stop acting and modeling, he would divorce her. Her decision was made easier by her agent's advice that studios don't like to work with actresses who are married, since they might get pregnant and be unable to work. It was truly one or the other, Jim Doherty or an acting career. A few months later, Jim's merchant marine ship had just docked in Shanghai when one of his fellow sailors ran up to him with a mail and yelled, Hey, your old lady's divorcing you. During the first few months of her contract at 20th Century Fox, Marilyn devoted most of her time to taking acting classes. She had a natural energy and presence that shone through in still photographs, but she was shy and had terrible stage fright. She got so nervous on set, she could barely remember her lines. The studio enrolled her in classes at Actors Laboratory Theater. She said it was her, quote, first taste of what real acting in a real drama could be, end quote. From that moment on, she was in love with acting, not just as a means for obtaining money and glory, but as a form of artistic expression. But Hollywood in the 40s wasn't bursting with serious roles for young actresses. She was given two minor speaking roles, one as a waitress and one in which she only said two words, Hi, Rad. 20th Century Fox didn't renew her contract when it expired that summer. She would have to find another way to prove herself. Marilyn kept taking acting classes, working in theater and networking with producers, until she was eventually signed by Columbia Pictures in March 1948. That year, she had her first starring role in a low-budget musical called Ladies of the Chorus. But once again, her ambitions would be crushed by studio executives. Days before her contract was up, she was called to the office of Columbia's head executive, Harry Cohn. As she later recounted, he asked her to go with him alone on an overnight cruise on his yacht. She politely refused, and as she left, he cursed and yelled after her, What makes you so special? In those years, the casting couch was an established practice in the studio system, and young actresses who refused to play along had no legal recourse to defend themselves. The next morning, Marilyn received word that Columbia would not be renewing her contract. This second failure almost crushed her hope. 
She remembered thinking, quote, There was going to be no luck in my life. The dark star I was born under was going to get darker and darker, end quote. After leaving Columbia in 1948, she turned back to pinup modeling to support herself. And she eventually met a talent agent named Johnny Hyde, the vice president of the highly influential William Morris Agency. He took her on as his protege, helping her land minor roles in a few high-profile films. He also paid for minor plastic surgery, a chin implant, and possibly a rhinoplasty, hoping it might advance her career. Even though Johnny was 30 years older than 22-year-old Marilyn, he fell deeply in love with her and even left his wife to be with her. Their relationship became sexual, but Marilyn refused his repeated marriage proposals. She said she loved him, but she wasn't in love with him. In 1950, Marilyn appeared in minor roles in six films, including The Asphalt Jungle and All About Eve. Despite only having a few minutes of screen time, her brilliant work in these minor roles finally gained her some attention, and Johnny was able to negotiate a new contract for her at 20th Century Fox. Things were finally looking up. But once again, Marilyn was about to be thwarted by tragedy. Just days after negotiating her new contract, Johnny died of a heart attack. Marilyn was inconsolable. It was shortly after Johnny's death that she attempted suicide for the first time by overdosing on prescription pills. Luckily, her acting coach stopped by her apartment and found her in time to take her to the hospital, where her stomach was pumped and she recovered. Not long after that incident, Marilyn began seeing a psychoanalyst. Psychiatric care was still in its early stages in the 1950s, but it's widely speculated that if she lived today, Marilyn would have been diagnosed with a clinical mental illness, possibly depression, bipolar disorder, or borderline personality disorder. Despite her grief, Marilyn went back to work shooting the movie As Young As You Feel. It was there on the soundstage that she met the man who, years later, she would marry, the playwright Arthur Miller. Arthur was married with children, but the two were drawn to each other immediately. Marilyn later said that she was attracted to him because, quote, his mind is better than that of any other man I've known, and he understands and approves my wanting to improve myself, end quote. Listening to Arthur converse with their mutual friend, director Elia Kazan, inspired Marilyn to brush up on her own knowledge of culture. She was a high school dropout who grew up in an orphanage, completely shut out from Arthur's world of educated intellectuals. Soon, Arthur returned to his family in New York, and Marilyn let her infatuation with him fade. But she was determined that the next time she encountered a man like him, she would be prepared to prove herself as an intelligent, well-rounded woman, not just a pretty face. She said, quote, I promised myself I would read all the books and find out about all the wonders there are in the world. And when I sat among people, I would not only understand what they were talking about, I'd be able to contribute a few words." End quote. At the same time, she was determined to improve her craft as an actress and transcend the one-dimensional bit roles that were always given to her. She began taking acting classes from the well-known actor and director Michael Chekhov, saying, quote, 
I want to be an artist, not an erotic freak. I don't want to be sold to the public as a celluloid aphrodisiac, end quote. The good news? Within the next year, she would become one of the most renowned actresses in the world. The bad news, her first few starring roles would cement her image as a celluloid aphrodisiac, and outrunning that reputation would be more difficult than she'd ever imagined. Nineteen fifty-two was Marilyn Monroe's year. She appeared in five major films, was named the It Girl of the Year by gossip columnist Florabelle Muir, and the Foreign Press Association of Hollywood named her the, quote, best young box office personality of the year. But despite her desire to play more serious dramatic roles, her fame was inextricably tied to her status as a sex symbol. She played the game well, wearing revealing dresses, telling gossip columnists that she didn't wear any underwear, and even talking openly about the scandalous revelation that she had posed for a nude calendar when she was desperate for money a few years earlier. She also started seeing baseball star Joe DiMaggio after a mutual friend set them up on a blind date. She knew that the more publicity she drew, the more starring roles the studio would give her. And it worked, to an extent. Despite her repeated attempts to break into serious dramas, she continued to be typecast as a dumb blonde. Around this time, she began abusing prescription drugs and alcohol. In addition to her insomnia and night terrors, her male co-stars and directors were often condescending and verbally abusive on set, and she turned to drugs to help her cope with the stress. Drug abuse was a common occurrence for Hollywood stars, especially in an era when powerful prescription stimulants and sedatives were widely available and poorly regulated. By January 1954, Marilyn was a veritable star, having starred in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and How to Marry a Millionaire the previous year, both of which cast her as, again, a dumb blonde gold digger. But star power was nothing compared to the power of the studio executives. When Fox attempted to cast her in yet another lighthearted musical comedy, despite all her protests, she refused to show up to set. As a result, Fox suspended her contract. She attempted to drown out the negative publicity by marrying her boyfriend, Joe DiMaggio. It was far from a perfect relationship. Marilyn had affairs with four different men during their two-year courtship, but the gossip columns loved them. Marilyn later recalled that Joe had said to her, quote, You're having all this trouble with the studio and not working, so why don't we get married now? I've got to go to Japan on some baseball business, and we could make a honeymoon out of the trip. End quote. On January 14, 1954, Marilyn tipped the press off just before they arrived at City Hall for a quick marriage ceremony. Soon, there were an estimated 500 people swarming the building. It was calculated, but effective. The publicity of the wedding completely drowned out Marilyn's suspension from Fox. If that wasn't enough, while they were in Japan for their honeymoon, Marilyn traveled to Korea alone to perform for thousands of U.S. Marines. She'd made her point. Her star power was undeniable. Fox had no choice but to negotiate with her. 
They reached a settlement, which included the promise that she would star in the upcoming film The Seven Year Itch, for which she would receive a $100,000 bonus, over $900,000 in today's money. Unfortunately, the marriage to Joe DiMaggio was short-lived. He was controlling, unsupportive of her career, and physically abusive. Just 10 months after their marriage, she filed for a divorce. The new contract was short-lived, too. After filming The Seven-Year Itch, Fox gave her the next script, which was, unsurprisingly, another dumb blonde role. Marilyn refused to do it. Fox threatened to suspend her again and reneged on the $100,000 bonus they had promised to give her. That move would come back to haunt them. By withdrawing her bonus, they had broken the terms of the contract, which meant Marilyn was no longer obligated to work for them. She was free to do whatever she wanted. What she did was move to New York and start her own production company. In January 1955, she held a press conference announcing the formation of Marilyn Monroe Productions. She said she was, quote, tired of the same old sex roles. People have scope, you know, end quote. She would spend the next year in New York taking acting classes, renegotiating a new contract with Fox, and rekindling her old romance with Arthur Miller, who still lived in the city with his wife and children. Arthur wasn't the only romance in her life. In the mid-50s, friends and acquaintances started seeing Marilyn sneaking around with another public figure. Senator John F. Kennedy. Their affair probably began sometime during the summer of 1954, when Marilyn was still married to DiMaggio. A mutual acquaintance recalled seeing the DiMaggios and John and Jacqueline Kennedy at a dinner party together. John kept staring at Marilyn, irritating both of their spouses. After Marilyn moved to New York in 1955, She was often seen leaving the Carlisle Hotel, where the Kennedys always stayed when they were in town. But Marilyn knew a prominent married senator like John F. Kennedy would never leave his wife for a film star. However, a prominent writer might. In 1956, Arthur Miller finally left his wife and married Marilyn. But the new union was doomed from the start. A friend commented that Arthur treated his new wife as if she was just an accessory and commented, quote, poor Marilyn, another insensitive male in her life is the last thing she needs, end quote. Not even two months after the wedding, Marilyn noticed Arthur's notebook open on his desk. He had written a long journal entry deriding her as childish and emotionally demanding, and questioning why he had married her in the first place. Marilyn was devastated. The problems in her marriage exacerbated the drug problem that she'd been dealing with for years. Later that year, she overdosed for a second time. Arthur called a doctor, and once again, her life was saved. Arthur and Marilyn stayed together for four years until the relationship finally fell apart while filming The Misfits in 1960. Arthur had written the screenplay with a leading role for Marilyn, and the stress of working together on set strained their marriage to the breaking point. Marilyn's drug problem was worsening, and her psychoanalyst, whom she'd been seeing for years, was unable to help her. That's when her lawyer, Mickey Rudin, recommended a new psychoanalyst, his brother-in-law, Dr. Ralph Greenson. 
Greenson had treated a number of prominent celebrities, including Marilyn's friend, Frank Sinatra. But what solidified the doctor-patient relationship was that Mickey Rudin had shared a piece of information with his brother-in-law that Marilyn was reluctant to discuss with her other doctors, that she was carrying on an affair with John F. Kennedy, who was about to be named the Democratic nominee for the presidency. With that already out of the way, Dr. Greenson quickly earned her trust. With her third marriage at hope's end, Marilyn desperately needed a confidant who was looking out for her best interest. Dr. Greenson became a voice of reason, discouraging Marilyn from getting involved with men that he believed were unhealthy for her. He warned her against reconnecting with Joe DiMaggio, and he would later disapprove of her brief relationship with his other patient, Frank Sinatra, possibly because of his knowledge that Sinatra had close ties to the Mafia. Marilyn was well aware of that danger, but seemed to not let it affect her. In 1961, Sinatra gave Marilyn a poodle, which she named Moff, short for Mafia. After Marilyn's death, Dr. Greenson would confess that he knew Marilyn's relationship with the future president was unhealthy, but interestingly, during her lifetime, he never discouraged her from seeing John F. Kennedy. In July 1960, the Democratic National Convention was held in Los Angeles. Marilyn took a break from filming The Misfits to visit Kennedy while he was in town. They stayed at the beach house of Kennedy's brother-in-law, actor Peter Lawford, along with Kennedy's security team, LAPD officers James Hamilton and Marvin Ianone. At the end of the convention, John F. Kennedy was announced as the Democratic nominee for president. But once Kennedy won the nomination, everything changed. His affair with Marilyn was an open secret among their social circle, but if it became public knowledge, it would put an end to his campaign. Just a few weeks after the convention, Frank Sinatra invited the entire cast and crew of the Misfits to spend the weekend at his Cal Nevada Lodge at Lake Tahoe. It was more than a friendly get-together. Sinatra was good friends with the Kennedys and closely involved in the campaign. According to Kennedy's close friend, Senator George Smathers, the real purpose of the event was for some of Kennedy's people to talk to Marilyn about, quote, putting a bridle on herself and not talking too much, end quote. It wasn't just the Kennedys that had a stake in the matter. Marilyn was aware that Sinatra had recruited his friend Sam Giancana, a major mafia boss, to help with JFK's campaign. If Marilyn accidentally revealed a connection between those key players, it would be bad publicity for everyone. Exactly how they convinced her to stay silent is a mystery, but when she came back the next week, she was in a terrible mood. She was already dealing with a stressful job and failing marriage, and apparently being rejected by the Kennedys put her over the edge. A few days later, she overdosed for the third time, she spent a week in the hospital and was released into the care of Dr. Greenson and a physician named Hyman Engelberg. Marilyn's condition stabilized somewhat, and she went back to filming The Misfits. As soon as the production wrapped, she and Arthur officially separated. And soon afterward, in November 1960, JFK was narrowly elected president. 
The election uh, may have been a close one, but I think that there is general agreement by all of our citizens that a supreme national effort will be needed in the years ahead to move this country safely through the 1960s. With the campaign behind him, he had a little more freedom to go back to seeing Marilyn. The blonde actress disguised herself with a black wig and horn-rimmed glasses and accompanied Kennedy on trips, introducing herself as his secretary. She was even given the phone number of a direct private line to the White House, and she had a code name, Miss Green, to be used when she called the White House switchboard. In late 1961, Marilyn moved back to California after seven years on the East Coast. She soon bought a house of her own in Los Angeles, just minutes away from Dr. Greenson's home, where her therapy sessions were held multiple times a week. Around this time, she also began seeing another man, the president's brother, Robert F. Kennedy, who had recently become the attorney general. Robert, or Bobby, made frequent trips to Los Angeles to stay with his brother-in-law, Peter Lawford. Bobby and Marilyn met at a party in L.A. in 1962. Marilyn carried a little journal around with her that night, taking notes on the political issues Bobby talked about so that she could read up on them later. They talked and danced all night, and according to friends, their relationship eventually became sexual. When Marilyn bought her new house, Dr. Greenson also recommended her a housekeeper, a woman named Eunice Murray. Unbeknownst to Marilyn, Murray wasn't just a housekeeper. She was a trained psychiatric nurse and a close family friend to the Greensons. It certainly looks like Dr. Greenson might have wanted to put Murray in Marilyn's house to keep tabs on her behavior, but his motivations weren't necessarily nefarious. The simplest explanation is that he was worried about Marilyn, and he trusted Murray to look after her. After all, she had already attempted suicide three times, and without someone trustworthy in the house, her next attempt might succeed. Well, fair enough, but whatever the motivation was, Marilyn's friends would later complain that Murray's behavior was strange and suspicious. She was always watching them and was sometimes caught listening from the doorways. She would often talk on the telephone in a whisper, maybe reporting back to Dr. Greenson. Maybe. But Marilyn herself never expressed any reservations about Murray. In February of 1962, when she took a vacation to Mexico City, she left it up to Murray to arrange her travel plans, and she ended up staying in the home of Murray's friend, Frederick Vanderbilt Field. Field was an American left-wing activist who had recently moved to Mexico after years of being targeted by the U.S. government's anti-communist crusade. Despite leaving the country, Field was still being surveilled by the FBI when Marilyn came to visit. A few weeks after Marilyn's visit, the FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover, called a meeting with JFK to discuss an alarming dispatch he'd received from Mexico City. Perhaps out of ignorance or naivety, Marilyn had discussed sensitive issues of national security with Field, who was suspected of being a communist spy. From the context of her comments, it was clear that the information she knew had come directly from the president. It was more than JFK's personal reputation on the line now. 
His affair with Marilyn was putting the nation at stake. Something had to be done. Marilyn had already made plans to sing at his birthday party at Madison Square Garden on May 19th. Bobby tried to convince her to call it off. By now, enough political leaders knew about the affair that it was bound to be a public relations disaster if she came to the party. But Marilyn wouldn't be deterred. Her hairdresser for the event recalled that while she was getting ready to perform, Bobby came backstage and the two got into a loud argument in her dressing room. Whatever the argument was about, Marilyn still went on stage. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Mr. President. Happy birthday to you. She returned to L.A. the next day, and the fight with Bobby seemed to be resolved. But five days later, on May 24th, Hoover scheduled another meeting with the president about what was only described as, quote, a matter of national security. It's not known what exactly they spoke about, but that same day, the private number JFK had given to Maryland was disconnected, and the White House switchboard was told that any calls from Maryland were not to be accepted. Maryland was absolutely shattered. He gave her no explanation for why he suddenly cut off contact. It was his brother-in-law, Peter Lawford, who had to deliver the news. According to Lawford's wife, Pat, he called and told Marilyn bluntly that she would never speak to the president again and that their affair hadn't even been serious. That didn't stop Marilyn. She called the White House and Bobby Kennedy repeatedly, demanding to know why the relationship had been ended so suddenly, but they wouldn't give her any further explanation. Dr. Greenson was out of the country for a few weeks, but Marilyn's publicist, Pat Newcomb, stayed with her for a few days, keeping her calm with her own supply of sedatives until the doctor returned to write a new prescription. It's worth noting that, coincidentally, Newcomb was a longtime close friend of the Kennedy family. Was this an act of friendly comfort, or had Newcomb been assigned to watch Marilyn and keep her sedated until she calmed down? We may never know. Marilyn went back to work on Monday, shooting for the movie Something's Gotta Give, but between the emotional trauma and the sedatives, she was completely unable to work. After 10 flub takes, she ran from the set, and the rest of the day's shooting had to be canceled. But the next day she returned, resolved to carry on with her work, and filmed for nine straight days without any trouble. The trouble came on June 4th, when she was struck by severe sinusitis. She had already stalled the production due to illness a couple months earlier, and her brief trip to New York to sing happy birthday to the president irritated the studio executives as well. When she asked to take leave for a few more days due to another bout of illness, they were furious. On June 7th, Marilyn was fired from the production, and Fox sued her for $750,000 in damages from the missed shooting days. On top of that, they began a smear campaign against her, sending stories to journalists claiming that she was mentally ill and the work she'd already done on Something's Got to Give was no good. 
Their reaction was totally out of proportion to Marilyn's request for a few more sick days. One possible explanation. The chairman of the board at Fox was a close personal friend of the Kennedy family, and he had received numerous calls from Bobby Kennedy just before Marilyn was fired. But he might have been calling about a film based on his book, The Enemy Within, which was in pre-production at the time. Maybe, but two weeks after Marilyn's dismissal, she and Bobby were both invited to a dinner party at Peter and Pat Lawford's house. According to Pat, the purpose of the meeting was to stop Marilyn's repeated attempts to contact the president since his private phone line had been disconnected. The day after the party, Bobby went over to Marilyn's house and they spoke privately for a while. The very next day, phone records confirmed that Bobby called the chairman of the Fox board again. Later that day, Fox immediately began an effort to renegotiate Marilyn's contract. Coincidence? It's totally possible that Bobby's calls were entirely unrelated and Fox decided to renegotiate because they didn't have another star who was both popular enough and talented enough to replace her. Marilyn reached a settlement with Fox to restart filming and things were looking up again. She did interviews for Life and Cosmopolitan to repair her image and whatever had happened between her and Bobby had apparently been resolved. But the final blow came on July 13th. The FBI received another memo about Marilyn's ties to suspected communists. A copy of the memo reveals that an unnamed informant who knew both Marilyn and Frederick Vanderbilt Field had heard her talking about a lunch she attended with the Kennedy brothers where they discussed atomic weapon testing. The informant's name has never been disclosed. But the only people known to have been close to both Marilyn and Field were Dr. Greenson, Eunice Murray and her family, and a Mexican screenwriter named Jose Bolaños. Four days after J. Edgar Hoover received the memo, Bobby's private phone line that Marilyn had the number to was disconnected. He refused to speak to her at all, leaving it to brother-in-law Peter Lawford to deliver the news to her that she wasn't going to be able to speak to Bobby again. With even Bobby turning on her, Marilyn began to unravel. She was never given an explanation for why both Kennedy brothers had suddenly cut off their contact with her. From her perspective, she was more than a mistress to them. She told friends that Bobby had even promised to leave his wife for her. This was the last straw in a life already marked by mistreatment and abandonment. Throughout late July, she saw Dr. Greenson and Dr. Engelberg multiple times a week. They were both prescribing her strong sedatives, including a barbiturate called Nembutal. At the time, Nembutal was commonly prescribed to treat insomnia and anxiety, but it's since been taken off the market because it's extremely lethal in high doses. Today, Nembutal is mostly used as an anesthetic in hospitals, as well as for euthanasia and capital punishment. Soon, paranoia began to set in. Marilyn told a friend she was suspicious of Dr. Greenson's motivations, and she had begun to suspect that he'd put Mrs. Murray in her house to spy on her. She also began to mistrust her publicist, Pat Newcomb, who had been keeping a close eye on her for months. Marilyn did have a family history of paranoid schizophrenia. Could she have been developing the same problem that plagued her mother? 
Or was she correctly sensing that her closest confidants had ulterior motives? She also told a friend she was afraid her phones had been tapped, which, it turns out, was entirely true. In the last weeks of her life, the CIA, the FBI, the Mafia, labor union leader Jimmy Hoffa, and possibly 20th Century Fox were all surveilling Marilyn's house. In a stroke of absurdity, Marilyn herself asked private investigator Fred Otash to install a recording device on her own phone, unaware that Otash had already been hired by someone else to install recording devices around her house. What could the Hollywood starlet have possibly done to arouse the suspicions of so many different groups of people? The answer lies inside a little red book she kept locked in a file cabinet, her diary. In keeping with her dedicated self-education, Marilyn had been keeping a diary for years where she recorded details of her conversations with the Kennedys, including sensitive information about the Bay of Pigs invasion, a plot to assassinate Fidel Castro, the Mafia's involvement in JFK's campaign, and more. She told friends that she had kept the journal for her own sake so she could speak intelligently about the political issues the Kennedys cared about. But after their betrayal, she saw another use for it. She floated the idea to a few friends that if she gave the diary to the press, the Kennedy family name would be tarnished forever. But it wasn't just the Kennedys who would be implicated. Marilyn's knowledge of the connections between crime bosses and the Kennedys could reveal damaging information about the Mafia as well, and they weren't going to risk letting that happen. On July 28, 1962, Frank Sinatra invited Marilyn to once again spend the weekend at his Cal Nevada lounge. She expected to spend the weekend relaxing, away from the stress and emotional turmoil she was facing at home but also in attendance that weekend were Peter Lawford and Sinatra's friend, crime boss Sam Giancana. When she came back at the end of the weekend, she told her acting coach, Paula Strasberg, that the weekend was a nightmare and that she was afraid of the mafia. She didn't elaborate on what had happened, and Paula passed it off as paranoia. No one ever spoke directly of what happened that weekend, except for Sam Giancana. A few years after the fact, an FBI surveillance device overheard him telling an associate that the purpose of the weekend's get-together was an orgy, where he and several other men had sex with Marilyn. This is corroborated by a roll of film Sinatra gave a photographer friend to be developed after that weekend. When the film was developed, the photographer was shocked by what he saw several photos of an apparently drugged and distressed Marilyn in sexual positions with several men, including Giancana. It appeared to be an assault, not a consensual encounter. On the photographer's advice, Sinatra burned the photos. But if the men had intended to threaten and blackmail her into silence, it didn't work. On Friday, August 3rd, writer Robert Slatzer claimed she called him and promised to reveal her diary and everything else she knew about the Kennedys. On that same day, an internal CIA document confirmed the same thing. 
Marilyn had been repeatedly calling Bobby Kennedy to complain about the way the Kennedy brothers were ignoring her, and she had threatened to hold a press conference to reveal what she called her diary of secrets. But it would never happen, because by the next night, she was dead. The events surrounding Marilyn Monroe's death on August 4, 1962, have been obscured for decades by contradictory statements, disappearing evidence, and unanswered questions. Several of the key witnesses gave conflicting reports to the police, or changed their story within the first few hours of the investigation, making it difficult to determine what the official version of the story actually is. What follows is the initial story that was given to Sergeant Jack Clemens when he arrived on the scene the next morning. On Friday, August 3rd, publicist Pat Newcomb spent the night at Marilyn's house. Newcomb was getting over a bout of bronchitis, and Marilyn invited her to stay over, rest, and get some fresh air on her patio. The next morning, the two women got into a serious argument, and Marilyn asked Newcomb to leave. According to Eunice Murray, the cause of the argument was that Newcomb had slept in late and woke well-rested, but Marilyn, with her chronic insomnia, had been unable to sleep at all, leaving her in a foul mood. Mm, that sounds improbable, since Marilyn had invited Newcomb over for the express purpose of resting and recovering from her bronchitis. When people are sleep-deprived, logic sometimes goes out the window. Despite Marilyn asking her to leave, Newcomb stayed for the rest of the afternoon, although she avoided talking to Marilyn, who was in her bedroom with the door closed for most of the day. Sometime in the afternoon, Marilyn asked Murray if they had any oxygen around. Murray was puzzled and alarmed by the question, and she called Dr. Greenson, who said he'd be over later to see what was going on. Well, oxygen was commonly used as a hangover cure at the time. It doesn't follow that Murray and Greenson, who were both trained in psychiatry, would be concerned by that request. Well, whatever had alarmed Murray alarmed Greenson as well, because he arrived at the house at about 5 p.m., Murray said he spoke to Marilyn in a room for about an hour, then came out and told Newcomb to leave. We run into another inconsistency here. Murray insists that Marilyn didn't leave her room or say goodbye to Newcomb at all. But Newcomb remembered Marilyn coming out to the living room and saying, quote, I'll see you tomorrow. Toodaloo. Dr. Greenson finally left at around 7 p.m., he asked Murray to spend the night there just to keep an eye on her. Soon after he left, at about 7.30, the phone rang. It was her former stepson, Joe DiMaggio Jr. When asked about the call, he said that she was in a great mood while they talked, and there was nothing to suggest that she was depressed or under the influence of drugs. Another inconsistency. Peter Lawford told the police that at 7.30, he received a call from Marilyn who sounded extremely depressed and was slurring her speech. She told him, quote, say goodbye to the president and say goodbye to yourself because you're a nice guy, end quote. Then the line went silent, as if she had put the receiver down or dropped it. He tried to call back, but the line was busy. 
Lawford was hosting a dinner party at the time, and his guests recall that he did get a call from Maryland at around 7.30 or 8, but it seemed to be routine and unimportant. He didn't seem concerned or confused at all after the call came in. Marilyn had two phone lines, and both phones were kept in a spare bedroom she called the telephone room. It was common practice for her to take one phone into her bedroom at night. Multiple friends attest she had a terrible habit of calling in the middle of the night when she was unable to sleep. It's possible that she accidentally left one of the phones off the hook, but either way, Eunice Murray said that Marilyn took the other phone into her room with her and made several other calls over the course of the night. Although we know her phone was bugged, no tapes of her conversations have ever been made public. Our only knowledge of those final conversations is from the recollections of the friends and associates who claimed to have called her that night. First, she received a call from her friend Henry Rosenfeld, who was in New York at about 8 or 9 p.m. They discussed their plans for the future, including a trip to New York the next week. He said that nothing in their conversation gave him the indication that she was depressed or suicidal. Next, she called her hairdresser, Sidney Gilleroff, at about 9 p.m. He said that she was extremely upset when they spoke, not depressed, but frightened. She said Bobby Kennedy and Peter Lawford had been to her house that afternoon and they'd threatened her. Gilleroff told her they'd talk about it in the morning. Between 9 and 10 p.m., she called her friend Jean Carmen, who said Marilyn sounded exhausted and frightened, but she wasn't slurring her words. She asked Jean to come over, but Jean said she was too tired. The last call was to Jose Bolaños, the Mexican screenwriter. He called her at about 10 p.m. He refused to disclose what they talked about, but he said, quote, Marilyn told me something that will one day shock the whole world, end quote. 56 years later, it's still not clear what he was referring to. In the middle of their conversation, Marilyn put the receiver down, disappeared, and never returned. It was the last anyone would ever hear from her. At about midnight, Eunice Murray woke up to go to the bathroom, saw the light still on under Marilyn's door, and knocked to see if she was still awake. When there was no response, she tried the door handle and found that it was locked. Alarmed, she called Dr. Greenson. Well, there are a few problems with this story. First, Murray's bedroom had a bathroom attached to it. She didn't need to go out into the hallway if she was going to the bathroom. Second, as investigators quickly noticed, the newly installed carpeting was a bit too thick and the door scraped along the top of it, making it impossible to see any light from beneath the door. And third, just a few hours after she gave her first statement to the police, she changed the timeline entirely and said that she didn't wake up until 3 a.m., Maybe the shock had messed with her memory. Or was the whole story invented to cover up the truth of what happened that night? Either way, when Dr. Greenson got to the house, he went around back and looked through the window. He saw Marilyn lying in bed, clutching the telephone, apparently unconscious. He broke in through the window, checked her pulse, and determined that she was dead. Empty bottles of the Nembutal he had prescribed to her were on the nightstand. 
the grief of her tragic life had overwhelmed her once more. Marilyn had overdosed for the fourth and final time. But did she really take her own life? Or was the suicide staged to cover up something even more tragic? At 4.25 a.m., four hours after she was found dead, Police Sergeant Jack Clemens received a call that Marilyn Monroe had committed suicide. The caller identified himself as Dr. Engelberg, Marilyn's physician. Accounting for the long gap between the discovery of the body and the call to the police, Dr. Greenson told Sergeant Clemens that they had to wait for a response from the 20th Century Fox Publicity Department before calling the police. But the skewed timeline was only one of many problems Clemens saw when he arrived to investigate. There were four people at the house when he arrived. Dr. Greenson, Dr. Engelberg, Eunice Murray, and the handyman, Murray's son-in-law, Norman Jeffries. Clemens noted Greenson was acting strangely defensive, as if he was challenging Clemens to accuse him of something. He went on to remark that Greenson's behavior just didn't fit the situation. People can act strangely when they're in shock or grief. That isn't necessarily a sign of guilt. Clemens and his colleague, Sergeant Robert Byron, who arrived to investigate later that morning, both noted that Eunice Murray's story of what had happened that day sounded rehearsed, as if she had been told what to say. Portions of the story didn't make any sense, like her bizarre statement that she had called the handyman, Norman Jeffries, in the middle of the night to clean up the broken glass after they broke into Marilyn's room, or the four mysterious hours that passed before the police were called. His next observation was that Marilyn's body was lying perfectly straight, face down on the bed, with no traces of vomit around her mouth. Overdose victims typically convulse before dying, leaving their bodies in contorted positions. It would be extremely unusual, if not impossible, for her to die in such a still, serene position. Clemens asked the doctors if the body had been moved, but they said no. The complete lack of vomit and pill residue was also suspicious, especially since in all three of Marilyn's previous attempts to overdose on sleeping pills, there had been so much vomit that the people who found her were able to pull undigested pills out of her mouth. But despite his crime scene experience, Clemens wasn't a doctor, and he would have to wait for the autopsy to make any conclusive judgments about how she died. Perhaps the most intriguing problem Clemens saw, judging by the empty prescription bottles and the extremely high levels of Nembutal in her blood, which would be revealed in the autopsy, Marilyn must have consumed at least 50 pills but there was no glass of water in the locked room for her to have swallowed them with. Greenson and Engelberg even helped him search the entire room and the adjoining bathroom, but there was no drinking vessel to be found. Clemens was puzzled by the entire situation, but he was soon relieved from duty by another officer, Sergeant Marvin Ianone. The same Sergeant Marvin Ianone, who had been a member of John F. Kennedy's personal security team two years earlier. Ianone sealed up the house, and by the time the full investigative force arrived, all three key witnesses had changed their story. 
Murray had previously told Clemens that she woke up at midnight. Greenson arrived at 12.30 and Engelberg had been called to the scene before 1 a.m. But now, the group said that Murray didn't wake up until 3.30 a.m., Greenson didn't receive her call until 3.35, and Engelberg didn't arrive to declare Marilyn dead until 3.50. The four-hour gap between the body's discovery and the police call was no longer a problem. Crime scene photographers also captured a glass of water on the nightstand. If Sergeant Clemens is to be believed, someone must have put the glass there after he noted its absence in the initial report. The brief, unofficial investigation into Marilyn's death would raise more questions than it answered. Why did neighbors report seeing an ambulance and police car outside Marilyn's house at 10.30 p.m. if her body wasn't found until after midnight? Why did the autopsy reveal no traces of pill residue in her digestive system? Why was evidence disappearing from the coroner's file? And why did Bobby Kennedy deny having been at Marilyn's house that night? Despite the official coroner's verdict of probable suicide, autopsy analysis, eyewitness testimony, and circumstantial evidence all suggest that suicide isn't the most likely explanation. But if that's the case, who killed her and why? Next week, we'll examine all the facts that contradict the official verdict and try to piece together what actually happened that night. The first conspiracy theory is that Marilyn's death was an accidental overdose. This theory holds that Dr. Greenson and Dr. Engelberg failed to communicate concerning the medications they were prescribing her, and they staged her accidental death as a suicide to protect themselves from malpractice allegations. The second conspiracy theory Marilyn was murdered as part of a communist conspiracy involving her doctors and housekeeper. Our third theory, Marilyn was murdered on the orders of the Kennedy family to stop her from revealing damaging information to the press. We'll also discuss a few stranger explanations for who might have killed her, the CIA, the FBI, the Mafia, or even labor leader Jimmy Hoffa. Since so much of this story hinges on unverifiable eyewitness reports, the truth may depend on the answer to this one question. Who can be believed? The people in power who might lie to protect themselves, or the little people who might lie for the sake of fame? Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. Join us next week as we continue our investigation into the death of Hollywood starlet Marilyn Monroe. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Conspiracy Theories is written by Kate Gallagher and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy.
Thanks so much for listening to Conspiracy Theories. Here's a reminder that you can find hundreds of thought-provoking episodes, stories you won't hear anywhere else, by following Conspiracy Theories free and only on Spotify.